Well, it's been a while since we, we've been in 2 Samuel. We've covered the first three chapters. Let me give you a summary, just in case you've forgotten what's happened by now. Chapter 1, King Saul has died. And then David wrote an entire song. He's in mourning. He's in grief. Chapter 2, David was crowned king of Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. He, he wasn't over all of Israel, just the southern part, because Abner, Saul's military captain, worked it out where Saul's son Ishbosheth could be the king of the northern part of Israel. He wanted to keep it out of David's hands. This caused a civil war to break out between the two tribes that lasted a long time. Chapter 3, verse 1 says that the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. The house of David waxed stronger and stronger. So David is slowly but surely winning this war. The rest of chapter 3 shows how David's military captain, Joab, he was embittered towards Abner because Abner killed his little brother uh, at the end of chapter 2. And and so chapter 3 shows how Joab killed Abner. Now we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4, this is, this is kind of a 38,000 foot view of, of the first four chapters, but, but chapter 4 really is the very last step before David officially becomes king over all Israel. Up to this point, even from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 5, God has been maturing David and preparing David and making a way for David to become king. And the chapter before us tonight is the final step in that process. So God has removed Saul like he said he would. Jonathan, Saul's son, is also dead. Now the only two people that could potentially be in David's way of becoming king over all of Israel is Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, and Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So this chapter is going to show us uh, how both are taken out of the way. Both of them are removed. One explicitly, Ishbosheth, and one implicitly, Mephibosheth. So I'm going to read all 12 verses. I want, you to, I want you to lock in with me on these 12 verses because we won't visit a, a lot of those verses one by one again. I want you to get a good picture of the text and then we're going to get after preaching tonight. Everybody say amen. amen. All right, let's read. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble. Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth. He heard Abner was dead, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimen, a, a, Ber, a Berathite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Berathites fled to uh, Gideon, uh, um, you know, and were sojourners there. Uh, man, I practiced that one. I don't know how to say it. And verse four, and Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old. When the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he was fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Rimen, the, the Berethite, uh, Rechab, and Baana went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house, pay attention to what's going on, as though they would have been they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib. Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him. 
and took his head and gathered them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead. Verse 10 is going back to chapter 1 when the Amalekite messenger tried to do the same thing these two thugs just did. Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings. I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men, wicked men like you two guys, have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they slew him. And cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. The title of the message is this, Pursuing Godly Goals in Godly Ways. Pursuing Godly Goals in Godly Ways. Ways. Verse 1 sets the context for us as it, as it explains this fear that comes upon King Ishbosheth and all the northern part of Israel after they heard that their military leader Abner had been killed. If you remember, Ishbosheth was a puppet king. He had no kingly aspirations. He was just placed there by Abner in an effort to keep the northern part of Israel out of David's hands. It was a power move and a power grab by Abner. Ishbosheth had no military capability. He, he definitely didn't have a, a leadership capacity necessary to be the king. So when Abner died, well, Ishbosheth lost all his courage. His strong man was gone. He knew the end of his kingdom was nigh. And so did two of his military captains by the name of Baana and Rechab. The, these guys could see the writing on the wall. King David was for sure going to be annihilated or, or was going to annihilate King Ishbosheth and take over the northern tribe of Israel any day now that Abner's dead. But it's interesting that before the narrator tells us what these two thugs decided to do with that information, he introduces, watch here, another character it was Jonathan's son. What was Jonathan's son's name? Mephibosheth. Thank you, ladies. Let's try the men. What was Jonathan's son's name? Let's try the men. What was Jonathan's son's name? Yeah, men. Let's talk back during the preaching a little bit. The narrator introduced him as the one who was lame on his feet. Lame on his feet. Apparently, uh, in an effort to evacuate the, the palace... Uh, Mephibosheth's nurse or nanny picked him up and ran out of the room with, with him in her hands. She dropped Mephibosheth. He, he broke both of his legs. They were injured. And unfortunately, they didn't have emergency rooms like we do. They didn't have special surgeons like we do. So young Mephibosheth was crippled the rest of his life, unable to walk. Now, now why did the narrator bring this character into the story when the story doesn't really involve Mephibosheth? Well, first, this detail will play a bigger part in the David narrative once we get to chapter 9. But what the narrator is doing, watch this, is he's wrapping the two villains of our story, Baana and Rechab, on each side. 
On one side is a powerless king named Ishbosheth. On the other side is a helpless cripple named Mephibosheth. The narrator is wanting to impress us with the total weakness of Saul's house. Chapter 3, verse 1, Saul's house is waxing weaker and weaker. And here it is. He has one son by now who lacks courage to lead. And the only other heir he has left is Jonathan's son who's crippled for the rest of his life and therefore lacks the ability to be king. The way the narrator introduces these two characters right up front should cause the observant reader to ask this question. Is it finally time for David to take over? Is Saul's house so weak and his army so dismantled that it's finally time for God's plan for his people through the shepherd boy to be fulfilled? Is it time? The short answer is yes. We'll see that in our message next week. David's going to be crowned over all of Israel in chapter 5, the south and the north. But before we get there, the narrator wants to show us that it's not just about the destination. It's also about the journey. It's not just about David getting to the king's throne. Something he's waited seven years for by this time. It's about how he gets there. It's not just about him reaching this godly goal. It's about pursuing that goal in God's way. This is where the two men from Ishbosheth's army come back into view, Baana and Rechab. They serve as an example on how not to achieve a noble goal. David serves as an example on how to pursue a godly goal in a godly way. We read verse 5, it tells us that these two men set out to kill King Ishbosheth. And here's why. They knew that David was about to take over their tribe and they wanted to do him a favor in order to get in his good graces. They wanted to eliminate one of his last threats. And then maybe David would trust them and let them remain captains in his army. So they tiptoed into the king's palace under the disguise of gathering some wheat, except they didn't go into the pantry. They found their way into the king's room where he was sleeping. They approached his bed, took out a knife and stabbed him to death in his stomach. Gets worse, they cut his head off. Reason they cut his head off is because they wanted to take back tangible proof to, to David to show them, to show him that they killed the, the king for him. They, they wanted the credit for removing the one last roadblock in David's way. So they carry Ishbosheth's head with them as they travel all night long back to Hebron. Once they get there, they proudly hold up Ishbosheth's bloody head. So as to impress David with their courage and their initiative. David didn't even ask us to do this. He's going to be so proud of us. We're going from his enemies to his friends. Our job is going to be secure. Even worse, you know what they did? They proceeded to bring God into it. Claiming that the Lord used them to avenge David of Saul and all his house. Watch here. This is morally disgusting. I know the Old Testament is is full of blood and guts and some of it is under God's permission. But this wasn't. Two men who murdered a man in his sleep are trying to justify what they did in God's name. Dale Ralph Davis said this about these men. They came with blood on their hands but theology on their lips. Expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. 
Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. Hear me, you can bring as fancy of a spiritual justification into your sin as you want. But at the end of the day, what God has called sin will always be sin. How would David respond? You would think at least internally he would be relieved. Finally, the last domino has fallen. He doesn't have to wait any longer to become king. He knows Jonathan's son is incapable of being king because of his permanent disability. And now Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is dead. So the kingdom is his. Finally, it's his. But we know David better than that by now. We know how David feels about respecting and honoring the house of Saul. In fact, it was just a few chapters ago that an Amalekite messenger came with the same type of ambition and lied to David and said, hey, I I killed King Saul so they didn't have to kill himself. And he wanted to get in good graces with David. And and David did just the opposite of what this Amalekite messenger expected. He rebuked him for touching the Lord's anointed and he ordered the young man to be killed instantly. David did the same thing with Baana and Rechab. He rebuked them for unlawful murder and he had them both killed and had them killed violently and shamefully. Here's what David knew. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to become king. He could become king by taking matters into his own hands. If he did that, he would have been king a long time ago. Or he could become king by letting God put him there. This is something David became convicted about in 1 Samuel chapter 24 when he he had an opportunity to take off Saul's head as Saul was going to the restroom in a cave. David's men pressured him to do so. They even did what Baana and Rechab did. They threw God into it. David, God has given you this opportunity, but he refused to do it and told them that I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel 26, David had another chance to kill Saul while he was sleeping. One of his mighty men, Abishai, told David that he would do it for him. And Abishai brought God into it. Abishai said, God hath delivered thine enemy into thy hand this day. Murder in his hands and theology on his lips. But David refused because he was convicted in his heart that God would make him king in his time. Are you following this? See, Tariq of Mbayana, the end justified the means. They had a goal and they were going to reach it, even if it meant pursuing it the wrong way. But to David, the means mattered as much as the end. He knew he would be king. He knew he would sit on the throne, but he wasn't going to put himself there. He wasn't going to murder Saul or any of his sons in an effort to get what he wanted. And this is the type of character God was looking for in his king. Do you see the contrast? Rechab and Baana pursued what they wanted in a worldly way. David pursued what God wanted in a godly way. Here's the truth for us. Godly goals should be pursued in godly ways. It's not just what you want that matters. It's how you get it. It's not just where you arrive that matters. It's how you get there. 
The story we just studied repeats itself over and over in our lives. We all have noble goals, even godly goals, and we will pursue those goals in one of two ways. We'll either pursue them in godly ways or we'll pursue them in worldly ways. And I want you to know tonight, there is a right way and there is a wrong way to get what you want. The world says that the end justifies the means. Do whatever you have to do to get what you're after. But Christians of character learn how to, how to go after the right thing in the right way. Let's talk about a few examples of how this plays out in our life and we'll go home tonight. I won't be able to point out every area of application for everyone in here. I'll point out a few concrete examples as I do this. The Holy Spirit will be preaching to every one of you. I'm going to give him space to apply what's true for you. And maybe what I say will be, but the Holy Spirit will hit you. I want to talk to the parents for a moment. Every parent should have the godly goal of raising a godly family. But did you know there's a worldly way to achieve that goal? Did you know that? Parents could be dictators. We fear losing control, and so we resort to intimidation tactics and other means, extra biblical means to modify our children's behavior. Screaming instead of having a composed conversation. Disciplining with anger instead of disciplining with love and grace. Guilting our kids instead of praying with our kids and teaching our kids. That's the world's way. If parents don't go to that extreme, sometimes we can go to the opposite extreme, which is just as dangerous and just as worldly, and that's passivity. We just look the other way because, frankly, we're tired of dealing with it. We'll let a two or three-year-old run our life. Literally, we say, come here, they run away, and then we chase them down and say, oh, you little cutie, you're just a hyperactive child. Let a teenager break the rules or stretch the rules, but explain it away by just saying, ah, it's just what teenagers do. It's how I was. It doesn't matter whether we're a dictator or a passive parent. Both are ungracious. Both are worldly ways to raise a godly family. Instead, we should just follow the book. God has a way of raising godly kids. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Key word of that whole verse is train, train, train. This is active. This is involved. It's not passive, but it's not controlling either. When you train, you sit down with composure and you show somebody how to do something. This is what teachers do. I walk into little learners. I walk into FBA and I see those lower grades and I see those, those teachers so patient, sometimes down on the floor with those students patiently, graciously, kindly teaching them on Monday, doing the same thing on Tuesday, doing the same thing on Wednesday. That is what training looks like. But parents are such control freaks that we skip the training phase and we just spank. We just scream. We just grab the back of their necks. We just pull them out of that situation so they can never do it again. When you train, you patiently show somebody how to do something. You show them what to touch and what not to touch. You show them where to go and where not to go. You train them how to respond when they don't get their way. 
You train them how to treat others. You train them how to share. You train them how to communicate when they're frustrated. And then once you've trained them in certain areas, watch here, God expects from the Bible, He expects parents to hold their children accountable for not doing what they know how to do. That's when discipline comes in. It's not a first resort. Discipline comes in all kinds of shapes and styles and phases and approaches, but it only comes after you've spent the time training them what to do and what not to do. And hear me, training isn't a bad thing. Discipline isn't a bad thing. The world will tell you it is. God tells you it's a really good idea. God models it in Hebrews. He disciplines his children. That's what the Bible says. He expects us to discipline our children lovingly and consistently and prayerfully because it's his means of developing godliness in them. But hear me, it's not just training. It's not just disciplining. It's modeling the behavior in front of them. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. The number one thing that will provoke your children to wrath, especially the older they get, the number one thing that will breed resentment in their heart is for you to expect from them what you will not do yourself. For you to expect them to respond and live in such a way that you aren't willing to respond and live. If you want to raise a godly family, I'm just telling you, you got to pursue that goal in a godly way. And sometimes that's the opposite of what you feel like doing. We'll talk about marriage. It's a godly goal to have a, a fulfilling marriage. But we often go about that the world's way. We avoid having difficult talks. We sweep things under the rug and hope they fix themselves. Sometimes we manipulate our spouse. Sometimes we play the victim to get what we want. Sometimes in marriage we straight up lie. We can scream. And argue with each other to get our point across. Or we can just roll our eyes and hold a grudge for days if we need to. That's just as effective sometimes. We think. But you won't get a truly fulfilling marriage when you're constantly trying to fight your way through problems or just avoid them altogether. Instead, pursue a godly marriage in a godly way. The, the Bible is so clear on God's way to a fulfilling marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves his church. That starts with knowing them, dwell, knowing them and dwelling with them according to knowledge. To know them, men, you have to spend time with them. To know them, you have to listen to them. To know them, you have to study them. And that doesn't just mean stare at them. Study their tendencies, studies what makes them tick, talk with them, open up to them. Loving your wife sometimes even includes leading her with the word. Ephesians 5. Not guilting her, not breathing down her neck all the time, not controlling her. Just being a godly example. Confronting sin when you have to. And graciously showing her a better way. This oftentimes takes a great amount of courage and discernment, but it's the right thing to do. Wives, the Bible says submit to your husbands. It feels so unnatural that submission is the way to success in marriage, but it's one of those paradoxical teachings in Scripture. Just like you become weak in order to become strong and you become humble in order to be exalted, the way to your husband's heart is through meekness and humility and respect, not manipulating or nagging or controlling. That doesn't mean pretending everything is okay when it's not. 
Part of a wife's role in a husband's life is to help him see his blind spots. To lovingly and carefully bring up those areas in his life that need growth and improvement. Yet listen, ladies, if your kind and timely rebukes in his life don't work, God says that you should resort to talking less and instead living a pure and holy life in front of him so that he can hopefully be won over by your example. See, there's a worldly way and a godly way to build a fulfilling marriage. I'm trying to encourage you tonight. Choose God's way. And it's often the very opposite of what you feel like doing in the moment. You know what another godly goal is? Providing for your family. That's a noble goal. But did you know there's a right way and a wrong way to go about this? The world says that providing for your family doesn't just mean that they have clothes on their back, shoes on their feet, food on their table, and a roof over their head. No, the world says that providing for your family means all of those things, but at the highest levels possible. The best shoes, the best clothes, the best meals, the best house. On top of these necessities, the world says we need nice vacations, and we need new vehicles, and we need fun hobbies. And we need expensive equipment to enjoy those hobbies. Provision to the world is not just necessities in which to live, but but a manner of living that that, that is as comfortable as possible and as luxurious as possible. That means if we're going to try to provide for our families the world's way, we're going to have to work overtime to pay for it. we got to get a second job to pay for it. We have to uproot our family for a better paying career and then do it again in five years and again and again. We have to miss church gatherings on a regular basis. We have to limit our time under the preaching of the word and around God's people, all in the name of, quote, providing for our family. But God says there's a better way. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's only one first. You can have a second, a third, and a fourth. There's only one first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things is referring to the food and the drink and the clothing we need to live. God will give you what you need to survive, and often more as you put him first. Don't avoid God's work, don't avoid God's kingdom, and then disguise your lack of priorities with trying to sound godly. Well, I'm just providing for my family, I have to do what I have to do. No, Rechab and Baana attempted to charm David with their deep theology so as to justify their murder. But David saw right through that and so does God. Missing out on the things of God continually for work on a consistent basis is not spiritual. It's carnal. Missing out on spending quality time with your family in the name of providing for your family is not responsible. It's not caring. It's just the opposite. And to disguise such carnality with spiritual talk is wicked. I realize certain jobs and careers require different hours and different amounts of labor through the week. God knows that. I realize certain seasons of life require a little extra income to get by. God knows that. But he also knows when you've made an idol out of work. He knows when you've begun to find your value in your productivity and not in him. He knows when you made success your chief pursuit. He knows when your desire to be, to, to, to be financially comfortable exceeds your desire to be close to the people you're claiming to provide for. He knows when your inf- interest level at work far exceeds your inf- interest level at church and in your home. Provide for your family, but do it God's way. 
There's only one first. When it comes to provision, only one first. Watch up here. One first. And that's the kingdom of God. And do not, please, men, we are pros at this. Do not cloak your workaholism with spiritual theology talk. Well, I'm just providing for you, baby. Just working hard so, you, so I can get you what you want. That's not caring. Amen. Another way this plays out is in the life of singles, teenagers, college students, adult singles. Specifically in the area of sexual intimacy, a desire for emotional and physical intimacy. We know it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. God created us to desire emotional and physical oneness with the opposite sex. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about that. Teenagers, tune in tonight. The world tells you if you feel it, do it. If there's mutual agreement to have sex, then it's okay. In the world's eyes, to wait until marriage to experience sexual intimacy is antiquated, it's ridiculous, and it's completely unnecessary. But here's what God says in the book of Thessalonians. My will is that you flee fornication. Refuse to participate in sexual activity until you have first made a covenant to that person in marriage. Don't play around with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't explore with it. Flee. Run as far away as you can from sexual fornication because it has the power to do great damage in your life when you pursue it in the world's way. Pursue it God's way and it's beautiful. Pursue it the world's way and it's ugly. And it feels ugly. I could go on, but the point has been made and I've given the Holy Spirit enough space to target the area in your life where you might be pursuing a godly goal in a worldly way. I'm here to tell you the end does not justify the means. God cares about more than just what you do. He cares about how you do it. He cares about more than just where you arrive. He cares about how you get there. So then how did David do it all the years? All these years, all these seven years. In the cave in Getty when he could have chopped off Saul's head. When Saul was sleeping, he could have chopped off Saul's head. Could have, could have been king way before Second Samuel. How did he do it? Well, let's close in verse 9. The last phrase. As the Lord liveth, David said, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. It's simple. David pursued godly goals in godly ways. It's really simple because he trusted in God. He had faith in God's plan and purpose to be fulfilled in God's time. And he was so convicted of that that he never felt it necessary to help God out. The reason why we rush God, the reason why we try to pursue godly goals in worldly ways is because we lose faith in God's timing. We lose trust in the Lord that has kept us safe through every adversity up to this point. We don't take time to to do inventory and check our Jesus history and look back at all the times that his thumbprint has been on our lives. And so we get in this one situation and we get tunnel vision and we panic and we get impulsive and we do things in the world's way because we don't stop long enough, get in our prayer closet long enough to say, God, I need you right now. God, I want to trust you right now. You know what we do? We lean on our own understanding. We don't acknowledge him, so so we don't get his direction for our path. We try to pursue 
Sometimes the right thing, but in the wrong ways. Just trust God. That's the answer. It keeps you from making work your idol. It keeps you from going after a bunch of money when God's plan isn't for you to have a bunch of money right now. It keeps you from, from a di- dictatorial type of parenting or a passive style of parenting. It helps you be able to wait for sexual intimacy until God brings the right person in your life and you commit to them in marriage. It helps you to say no to things that you really want to say yes to. When you just have faith in God's purpose and plan to be fulfilled in your life. David's a good example, isn't he? Teaches us how to wait. Teaches us how to have faith. Teaches us how to pursue godly goals in godly ways. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Amen. Stand to your